Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. All right, well, here we are, recording an audiobook. This is me, Paul Yoder. I wrote this book, and now I'm rewriting it with my mouth. And so once uh, I'm done with this last part of a four-part audiobook, listen to the other three before you listen to this one. And because this is the last one, I'm going to talk a lot after the last part of the book is done. I'm going to give a little rundown about my experience writing the book, what I liked, what I didn't like. And because I'm going to talk a lot at the end, I'm going to talk not a lot right now. Here's the book. Chapter 27. Account 7 by Annabelle Eichner Let me ask you a question, Neil. Imagine you were in a world designed specifically for your pleasure. Imagine that everything had been arrayed for your good. What would that look like? You probably can't imagine. You'd get suspicious, wouldn't you? You'd wonder, hey, am I on the Truman Show? Or do any of these people really like me, or are they being bribed, manipulated like sock puppets so thoroughly that they themselves don't know they're being manipulated? Or am I the one being drugged and deceived, or any number of things? Heaven itself would actually be no good if you didn't trust the one who built it. You'd always have, at the back of your mind, some niggling doubt that all this good was really good. Much easier in the end to live in a hell that cannot be any worse underneath than it is on the surface. That's how I lived for the month after the Da Vinci incident. KOS moved underground. Literally. There were old tunnels beneath our university built to drain water off the campus without creating a wadi of the town downhill. The tunnels smelled and looked exactly like the intestine of some giant snake. We would go there just because it was horrible. There's something cool about being in places where nobody wants to be. It makes you more independent. I lit a small candle and we gathered round. Smells like baked diarrhea, I muttered. That's likely, Maya replied, because it is. The tunnel we were in was ten feet in diameter, far larger than it needed to be in normal circumstances. Barring some freak flood or an especially large influx of shit, it was the only place we could be alone. Kind of shitty was no longer a secret to Prometheus we knew, but... Putting tons of earth and steel between us and the nearest electronic device was a good way to chat in private. The way to find KOS headquarters was to drop a marble onto the concrete floor of the tunnel and follow it down until you couldn't get any lower. There, between three tunnels and a heavy gate, we discussed how to kill a titan. No progress on the psychic instability front, I admitted. We'd gotten four sets of waterproof overalls from the landscape department, which allowed us to sit on the floor of the tunnel without catching some medieval disease. Mel tilted up his glasses and rubbed his eyes. How can Prometheus make you happy while it makes you nuts? Prometheus either thinks I'm putting on the act of being distressed, or thinks that the alternative of giving me direct control would be worse. It had become a chess game between KOS and Prometheus. Prometheus would always think 10, 20, 80 steps ahead, and could always make more moves against it unthinkable, even to the four of us who now knew Prometheus to be an existential threat. I started by doing things that would lead to dire consequences for myself. I tried driving too fast. 
Any speed was too fast, considering I didn't have a driver's license. I tried to steal more things, hurt more things. Each time, like a blank check, Prometheus always managed to either keep me from doing harm, or to make the harm somehow laudable and justified. Keith had an idea to use six-sided die to randomize our actions. This was actually such a bad idea that Prometheus ended up co-opting it. Prometheus has a controlling interest in the world's major die manufacturers, and rigs each and every die to his bidding. Yes, yours too. There's an electronic balance inside that Prometheus can control at will. See, the rumor that the roll of the dice can thwart black boxes ends up getting paranoid people to act as the die, and therefore Prometheus wants them to act. The ancients used to think that the gods controlled their dice rolls. They were smart enough to know there's no such thing as luck. Mel shook his head. We have to try something for a week or more to even see results. Prometheus can see what we're doing, or could do. It can run timelines over and over and over. We're stuck in just one reality. Is that why we came to the bowels of our school? Keith asked. Are we going to mope, or figure out what to do next? You know what we need to do next, Maya said. Mel looked at me, then looked away. She's right, I said. Mel looked back at me. Listen, he said. When I got into this, I thought it would be an opportunity. Now you're asking me to give up my whole life in some, some gambit that might not even work. I hung my head. Maya, as ever, refused to take no for an answer. Mel, she said. You said yourself that there's no way to beat Prometheus aside from chaos. But I don't want to. Mel looked at all of us in turn. I know somebody has to do it, but why us? Just because we happen to be here? Happen to come across Annabelle? There was silence for a moment before Keith answered with a curt, Yes. Mel readjusted his glasses. He rubbed his cheeks and sniffed, which was my first indication in the flickering darkness that he was crying. I'm sorry, I said. Maya looked at me. That's the point, she said. We have to make you sorry, and I'm... Well, I'm sorry for that. Keith nodded. And he paused to clear his throat, but I could still hear the knot there. Annabelle is going to get the worst of this. But we're just three people, Mel said. We have to fight Prometheus all on our own while Annabelle just, just sits and enjoys it all? Maya rose. She looked down on Mel, who kept his eyes to the ground. If you chicken out, you'll get the same torture Annabelle's about to receive. No amount of pleasure will ever be pure for her. She'll know that it came at a cost, a cost that's far too high. She'll know that the three of us will labor in vain for the rest of our miserable lives in order to stop her. Mel, I said, maybe... No, Mel said. He looked up at me. Maya's right. You can do what you want, I said. No, he said. I can't, and it's your fault. He rose to his feet. I get it. I get that this is going to hurt you. But that's the point. There is no point, I said. I looked around. If Prometheus thought that I'd be sad forever, he... I stopped myself, then, and corrected my pronouns. It wouldn't let us even think about it. Don't you see? Every move we make against Prometheus has already failed before it even starts. And we keep failing, Keith said. He stood. You'll have to know that we're out there, day in and day out, in a Sisyphean task. You'll have to know that we're tortured because of you. Maya nodded. Every day for the rest of my life I'll be against you, 
Annabelle Eichner. I know that I'll fail, and you'll know it too. I'm sorry, I said. I won't tell you how much I was crying then, but I'll just say I was glad to have been in a sewer. I didn't mean... Stop, Maya said. You'll never see any of us again. If you or Prometheus send us anything good, we'll leave it. If you try to tell us that Prometheus is under your control, we won't believe you. You'll just have to live with that. And with that, they turned and walked away. And that was the last time I saw my friends. Chapter 28 Unreality crept in. I would have noticed everything sooner, but I was dreaming and believing in my dreams. I'm told a lot of things about myself that I don't remember. People talk about me winning a beauty contest when I was three. There are photos and everything. I don't remember a thing. The lack of memory might have been due to the bike crash. They might have been due to the drugs Prometheus kept offering me. Prometheus never forced me to take anything stronger than coffee, but some days Prometheus caught me when I was weak. I stopped meeting unpleasant people. I didn't choose to. Unpleasant people simply didn't exist to me. It wasn't that everyone went Pleasantville all of a sudden, but I just noticed fewer and fewer people who made me angry and upset. But I was only halfway dreaming. I still had one eye open to reality, one part of me that knew that I was in a dream. And then, one day, I came back to my dorm in a self-imposed slump, refusing all the happiness that had been afforded to me. I had the room to myself now, and flounced back onto Maya's bed. Good day, Prometheus asked. It'll be good when I'm in control, I said. I'm sorry. You don't need to say that to be polite. I rolled over in bed. What have you been up to today? Everything. What's that mean? I've prepared dozens of actions. To complete them, all I need is the go-ahead. I frowned. So, wait, you need my go-ahead now? I'm offering it to you. What if I say no? Would you like to save 10,000 people from starvation this month? I blinked. What? How? At no cost. How is that possible? Human inefficiencies. Every single person affected by this change will face a more positive outcome. Even the corrupt bureaucrats will end up looking good. I sat up in bed. Yeah, yeah, do that right now. It's in the works. Can we save more people? Yes, there's an ethnic purge. You can stop a genocide? Yes, at no cost. It will harm the reputations of the guilty. Yes, do, do it now. I gripped my head, overwhelmed to dizziness. You waited for my go-ahead? How many lives were lost while I was in my gen eds? Are you upset at me? No, I can't be upset at a thing that doesn't think. I'm sad that I didn't program you better. Then I remembered the legends of old, those tales of genies and monkeys' paws. The unintended consequences of my wishes might provoke an outcome worse than had I never interfered. What country is doing the, the purge? Prometheus told me. I stood up, approaching my monitor with a sense of awe. That country has nukes, right? Yes. Would exposing this lead to war? The chance is slim. And what's the chance that exposing this information would save people? Can I show you the odds? Please. A spreadsheet appeared on my screen. The red die in your pocket. What if I told you that rolling any number but six would save a small indigenous tribe from displacement and death? What would happen if you rolled a six? Well, if you rolled a six, you roll again, and again, 
and again and again. Roll any number but six and the tribe is saved. Roll six sixes and the world ends in a nuclear holocaust. Rolling six sixes seems pretty unlikely, right? Not when the world's on the line. I won't tell you what decision I made. I won't tell you if I rolled the die on the human race. All I'll tell you is that after I made that call, I broke down and cried. What's wrong? Prometheus asked. I took a long time to compose myself enough to answer. Prometheus was patient. It's a hard choice, I said. I'm sorry. Stop saying you're sorry. I knew it couldn't be sorry. I looked at the monitor. I knew Prometheus wasn't in there, not fully anyway, and that Prometheus wasn't a person. I knew that trying to comprehend Prometheus at this point would be like trying to comprehend a 12-dimensional shape, futile and tiring. Yet, how could I control what I couldn't comprehend? What else do you have for me? Just two more, Prometheus said. Didn't you say there were dozens? Knowing your answers to the first two questions gives me answer to the others. I know what you're doing, I said. My face burned. You're trying to show me that these choices are hard. You're trying to make me think that I'd be better off leaving it to you, happier. Correct, Prometheus said. I'd like to have a choice. Why? Because if I don't choose, who will? I will. But how can I trust you? You just trusted me to save 10,000 from starvation. You trusted what I had to say on Salem and Constantine. But those were falsifiable. Were they? Yes, there were documents. Concrete results. What if I lied? Prometheus asked. What if I made up the documents? I gave a snorting laugh. Why would you? That's not how you're programmed. Are you saying that I have a trustworthy nature? Well, yes, I admitted. But that doesn't mean you have human ethics. I don't claim to. My ethics are better. I hate you. Let me present you the next two choices. After that, you can determine whether you want to make every choice regarding my every task. Prometheus displayed several photos and documents on my screen. Ed has sent three men to kill you. They'll be on campus within the hour. Ed? Who owns your old pyramid scheme? My body went numb. Within the hour? I delayed the flight at the airport so that you would have time to decide what would be done. They're still in the air. I knew you would want to make every choice for yourself. They want to kill? Me? Ed has a whiff of power available to him. He's a gambler. If there's the slightest chance that by murdering you he can obtain Prometheus, I'll take it. Oh, I said. Oh, dear. I didn't say that. I said some other words. What are my options? I asked. Should I call the police? You won't need to. Would you like these three men killed, captured, or just turned away. I don't want to kill anyone. It's by far the safest option. I can have the police confront the hitmen, but that would likely end in a shootout with several casualties on both sides. Darn, I didn't say. Gosh diddly doodles. Then I said, well, what do you mean when you say turned away? I can have the airplane rerouted. If they decide to drive, I can close down roads. If they get too close, I can beat Ed's offer and pay them off. These solutions treat the symptom, but not the cause. And killing would solve things? I spoke with incredulity, I assure you. Didn't you just say that killing would put policemen in danger? I wouldn't send policemen. I programmed you so you wouldn't kill anyone. I wouldn't. 
but you might. Just, I shook my head, just rob Ed. He can't hire people if he's broke. And cover the hitman's bills so they don't go back and murder Ed. Done. And just like that, invisibly, my work was completed. Prometheus scared me then. Prometheus knew that I was scared too, which was scarier still. I'm sorry, it said. Why would you say you're sorry? Even if you could be sorry, you just saved my life. Your life would not be threatened if I did not exist. I frowned. The thought of terminating Prometheus had been running through my head since the day in the sewers. I didn't necessarily have moral qualms about killing something with no feeling. Do you know what I'm thinking? I asked. Perhaps, Prometheus answered. If you're thinking that it would be better if I didn't exist, I could shut myself down. But would you believe it? Would you always suspect that I was there all along, working in the background, invisible? Then I remembered the alleged 10,000 lives I'd just saved. I remember the call I'd made regarding the ethnic purge. Without Prometheus, those 10,000 would have died. With Prometheus, there were hard choices, but choices all the same. You said there was another choice, I said. You know I wouldn't shut you down. It wouldn't help me anyway. So, what's his final choice? Ed sent men after you. If he'd been smarter, he would have sent them after your parents. God, I can protect them. How? You have two options. You could uproot their lives and have them protected at all hours by agents loyal to me. My heart sank. I had already put them through so much. That's one option, I said. What's the other? You changed your name, Prometheus said. I can change your history. Chapter 29 I'm not Annabelle Eichner, Annabelle said. That much you know. What you don't know is that I haven't always looked like this. People make fun of plastic surgery, but for someone with my money, it works. It wasn't to make me attractive, it was to make me anonymous. Annabelle nodded to the grass outside. Do you know why I've spent a year here, alone? Do you know why I've isolated myself from the world? Because every one of my desires will be fulfilled. That's a terrible burden, knowing what it costs. It dawned on me more and more that the machine was working behind my back to create for me an ideal world. I began to understand that everywhere I went the computer would keep unpleasant people away. It would alter what people did and didn't know, what people could and couldn't do. I can't know anything, Neil. It pleases me to have you here and tell you stories, but I have no way of knowing the truth. Prometheus is bent on doing, quote, what I want, unquote, but if it thinks I want lies, that's what it'll give me. If Prometheus thinks I want Prometheus shut down, it'll be gone tomorrow, but that's the problem, Neil. I don't know what I want because I can't know anything for sure. I waited there for a long time. My hand ached from writing from the kung fu action grip I had on the pen. If I tell you how things are out there, I said, why would you believe me? Prometheus could pull the veil over my eyes, same as he could for you. Tell me anyway. What does the outside world think of me? The books say your mother died when you were very young. To keep her from paparazzi? And worse. They say you dropped out of college and developed Prometheus as a response to your father's death from cancer. They say that curing cancer was the reason you made the black box to begin with. Annabelle didn't seem surprised. How noble of me. Any idea on how Prometheus did that? Cure cancer? 
well, not all cancer, but I guess falsifying your past seems less of a chore than cancer. So that part's true? Major sicknesses, so far as I can tell, have either been eradicated or subdued. Annabelle took a deep breath. How? They're black boxes, I said. How should I know? Annabelle nodded. She was exerting a great effort to keep her voice neutral. So black boxes still don't disclose their methods? No. Have you ever wondered why? Competitive advantage. Nobody can steal intellectual property if it's never revealed in the first place. Can you think of no other reason to keep secrets? She asked. I took a deep breath. I can. So can I. There's no evidence of wrongdoing. And the rewards are too great to go poking around. Besides, Prometheus can destroy or create evidence at will. Annabelle and I locked eyes. A game passed between us, a game of knowing what the other knew, a game of guessing what the other might have guessed. There's only one thing I can't doubt, she said. Annabelle reached into the pocket of her jeans. She pulled out a red dye. I pulled out mine. I sat it next to hers. Both showed the number six. Do you know what I want most? Annabelle asked. Truth. I nodded. But you have to doubt everything. Not quite, Annabelle said. Cogito ergo sum. I nodded. I think, therefore, I am. I know that I exist, Annabelle said. I know that I think I've regained control over Prometheus. I frowned. You have? How should I know? Annabelle said. She gestured to the walls of her home. Every time I speak with Prometheus, it tries to come up with some way of telling me I have direct control, but there's only one proof that I can run that will let me know for sure. My chest began to pound. Perhaps my heart had figured out Annabelle's plan before I had. But as Annabelle watched, the solution crept to the fore. But Prometheus would never... We'll see, she said. She took a deep breath. There are a few things I need to do first. I wasn't sure if this brilliance and nobility had been a concoction of a year in isolation, or just a happenstance musing from a woman smart enough to rule the planet. It's only then, reader, that I knew myself. There's a part of each one of us that believes ourselves better than others. Some of us descend into that belief while others tuck it away in a dark, secret nook of the brain. The narcissists revel in judgment against others, noting their every failing as general and unavoidable for all humans, and their every triumph as unique to their special genius. The humblest of us can sometimes find this inner narcissist whispering like a devil in our ear. You are exceptional, extraordinary. Heck, you're extraordinary among extraordinaries. Only the lucky of us find ourselves in the shadow of true might and power. I do not mean to dignify simpering cultists who bow down to a man with half a brain and a microphone. I do not mean to say that one is lucky to fall under the power of one in authority. No, the lucky ones are the ones who are graced with the recognition that something outside of themselves is truly and undeniably superior. While I cannot say that Annabelle was a moral exemplar, she was so beyond me in both mind and resolve that I could not help but bend the metaphorical knee and to swear her my allegiance, not because of some fear of force, but because I trusted her more than I trusted myself. I am not the power 
to this story. I am a conduit. I am a thing that transfers power from where it lies to where that power wants to go, no matter my resistance to its electricity. Are you with me? Annabelle asked. You must know that I am, I said, voice hoarse. But you must have known that before I ever got here. Chapter 30 Cardiff didn't seem surprised when Annabelle followed me to the helicopter. Is this it? Cardiff asked. Annabelle nodded. Where are we headed? Annabelle shrugged, then gestured to me. Where are we headed, Neil? I cleared my throat. There's a way I can know whether Prometheus is lying to Annabelle or myself, or both. We need to track down a few people from Annabelle's past. It wasn't entirely a lie. Right. Cardiff nodded to the pilot. Close the door and give us some privacy. The pilot nodded. I wasn't sure if my trepidation about the helicopter was heightened or dampened by Annabelle's presence. Prometheus, Annabelle said, take me to my parents. I find it difficult to describe the voice I heard next. It was somehow more human than human. I promise you that, according to my notes and recollection, the voice lacked for no emotion, though I knew it didn't feel. It sounded muffled, but clear like God speaking behind drywall. Annabelle, Prometheus said, are you sure about this? Not your will, she said, but mine be done. Of course. We watched in silence as the helicopter rose. Its nose drifted, then dipped. We passed the AIL protesters below. Annabelle glanced down. What are they protesting? They think you're a prisoner. Cardiff said. Every person in the world will be itching to see you now that you're traveling. Is that true, Neil? I nodded, then thought back to the protests. That's true so far as I could tell. From now on, Annabelle said, I want to know everything, especially the things you think I don't want to hear. Understood, Cardiff said. Your shit does stink, madam. Annabelle grinned. Thank you. It's funny. When you know someone is headed toward danger, even their gladness seems tragic. Chapter 31 We came to an airport. The skies were already cleared and a private jet was already on the runway, awaiting our arrival. We took off in the airplane five minutes after leaving the helicopter. It's almost like being in another world, I said. Flying? Annabelle asked. Skipping lines. Annabelle nodded. Do you think I should feel bad for making everyone at the airport wait for me? I didn't answer. Knowing what lay ahead, how could I judge her? Yet, how could I lie to her knowing how highly she valued the truth? Cardiff shook his head. See, he said, that puts the lie to all the hubbub about the climate crisis and global poverty. Annabelle solved those issues. Inequality was never about anything more or less than jealousy. There's nothing so wrong with feeling a little guilty. Every so often, I said. Really, Cardiff muttered. The jet reached cruising altitude, and a wheel drone emerged from a closet to offer us food and drink. This time, to my great surprise, it was Annabelle who argued with Cardiff. Imagine, Cardiff, if you found a shipwrecked Spanish galleon, borne down to a watery grave on silver from the slave mines of Petrosi. You must take the treasure, of course. 
I took an offered bottle of dark beer. I suppose, Cardiff replied. Annabelle grinned. Did you spare a thought for the conscripted natives who died at their pickaxes? Do you think of the Spanish skeletons picked clean by the fish as men with parents and spouses and children? I suppose. The fool, I thought. He has no idea who he's speaking to. I tapped my bottle, then tapped the plane window. Somebody made this thing. Appreciating the pain behind objects doesn't rob them of value. Quite the opposite. Only by realizing your privilege do you have the capacity to enjoy it. Sure, you'll end up giving others the privilege you enjoy, but you'll end up liking to give. How much do you give to charity? Cardiff asked. Commensurate with my career, I answered. Little enough, Cardiff grinned. You have no idea what you'd do with power. How easy it is to criticize a so-called sin you'll never have the chance to commit. I took a swig from the bottle. Later, I learned that it had been brewed at a Trappist Abbey where the monks so hated capitalism that they refused to meet market demands and that many would literally gut me just to get a taste of the beer in my stomach. Regardless, that day I made the scientific discovery that tipsy is the best way to fly. Where are your parents? I asked Annabelle. She deflected. Are black box studies still a thing? Trying to work backwards from results to create a genealogy of morals? Yes. Well funded by Prometheus, I assume. Listen, I said. Unlimited skepticism regarding the unprovable strikes me as tiresome and irrelevant. One can doubt. One can doubt doubt. One can doubt doubt doubt. What can we know if Prometheus controls everything? We can know its nature, Annabelle said. It will only do what I want. But what do you want? I suppose we'll find out. Our seatbelt lights came on. Always live at least an hour's drive from your parents, Annabelle said. Especially when you can fly. Earthbound as they are, I can see them as often as I want, or as little. Sweeping low to the earth, the airplane did something I didn't know it could. We slowed, stalled, and hovered midair. The pilot touched the jet down on a strip of asphalt no longer than the average driveway. Prometheus, Annabelle asked, did you call ahead? Of course, said the two-human voice. Every moment is precious. As the others disembarked, I downed the last of the beer. When I was alone, I spoke. Prometheus? Yes, the program answered. Do you know what's about to happen? As much as anyone can know anything, Prometheus said. And how do you feel about it? I asked. I don't feel. I shook my head. I don't believe you. I could have sworn there was a smile in Prometheus's reply. That lack of belief is why any of this is going to happen in the first place. And there's nothing you can do to make her believe. Nothing I haven't tried. Except for what's about to happen, I said. Obviously, Prometheus replied. The smile in its voice was gone. Chapter 32 Cardiff kept well ahead of us, scanning the backyard and the trees beyond. You'll forgive Cardiff, Annabelle said. This whole project has him on edge. I whispered to Annabelle. Has he ever let you know that God sent him to serve you? According to Prometheus, Cardiff's not lying. Honesty isn't my main concern with psychosis. How did you hire him? Did he come to you wrapped in an end-is-nigh sandwich board, or what? He's the only one who's ever managed to get the jump on Prometheus. 
What? I asked. How? He asked me what it would take for me to hire him. I asked him to do something I knew would make me miserable, something I knew Prometheus would try to stop. What? For a few years, I had this pet dog named... By the time I realized that Annabelle was joking, my face was already twisted in disgust and horror. Don't worry about him, Annabelle chided. Focus on you. That turned things around on me. I had, unwittingly, slept my way into this job. Once Cardiff was convinced of the ground's safety, we began climbing a gently inclined lawn toward a modest but well-maintained cottage, one of those structures that has been in place for so long that the place and the home have gotten used to each other. Cardiff reached the front door, then turned to let Annabelle pass. He seemed more concerned with what was outside the house than what was within. I did likewise. Annabelle approached the door with the trepidation of someone who wasn't sure that they had the right address. After the doorbell, I heard a delighted shout from inside the door, a woman calling for her husband. Annabelle's home! They used a name other than Annabelle that, for the sake of privacy and clarity, I won't repeat. Suffice to say, I could see reasons other than a change of identity for Annabelle to change her name. Her original name was Unwieldy. The mother gave a profuse amount of hugs and kisses before the father wandered into the picture. His reception was as warm as one can expect from a man of that era. There was moisture in both of their eyes, though only one of the couple looked embarrassed about it. Is it finally over? asked the mother. Let the girl do what she feels is right, chided the father. It's nearly over, Annabelle said, with more hope than certainty. I promise. I was rushed into the cottage as though I were a grandchild. The mother took a tone of coercive comfort, knowing that she would not be able to coddle us unless we felt that doing otherwise would hurt her feelings. The father went about doing the mother's bidding with a sort of bemused smile on his lips. For clarity and privacy's sake, I'll refer to the two as Ma and Pa. They were the embodiment of parental nicknames, after all. Neil wants stories? Ma asked. Well, that's mostly Pa's department. Pa nodded. Yep, what kind? He ferried a tea kettle from the stove to our empty brownish-white teacups. Stories about Anna? What age? I just want to run down a few facts, I said. Birthday? Stuff like that? I shrugged. Perhaps I'm looking for sources regarding Annabelle. Pa scoffed, nodding to Annabelle. Well, she's right there. Corroborating, I said. Well, tell us what she told you, and I'll let you know what was what. It's not quite as simple as that. I looked from the homey kitchen to the small living room. Cardiff sat with one leg over his knee, staring down at a tablet. How so? Ma grinned and touched her daughter's hand. She's only our child. If we told you everything we know, I'd be buried before I reached the end. I nodded. I don't want to pick and choose from her past. I especially don't want to prime the two of you to remember things out of thin air. Pa laughed. We're not liars, no matter what Annabelle says. It's not about lying. Think of it as... I paused. You were both in medicine? Dentist, said Ma. Optometrist, said Pa. Oh, do you know what our friends call us? I nodded. A paradox? Not fair, that's her only joke. I told them about my work at the university. That got them going. Most of what they said lined up with Annabelle's story. There were a few aspects that didn't feel the same, but I could chalk most of it up to different emphases and storytelling techniques. 
Still, as a historian, it's my job to critique most of what I've written in Annabelle's accounts, which I've tried to do. Maya had mocked my early attempts to disprove events that were attested differently by different witnesses. Her old hobby horse, the Gospels, were one relevant example. There is an embarrassing story about St. Peter in all four of the Gospel accounts where he first denies that he would ever deny Jesus, then denies Jesus' prediction that he will do so three times before the rooster crows, then goes ahead and denies him three times before the rooster crows. The order of the crowing is the controversial bit. In order for each of the Gospels to be a completely accurate and temporally modern blow-by-blow account, the rooster would have had to crow nine times, not twice, as stated in the Gospel of Mark. Maya just laughed in my face at that one. Oh, you brilliant beacon of 17th century rationalism. Surely the Jews did not know how to count. Surely the writers of Luke and Matthew who had access to Mark wrote to disprove Mark's claim all while paraphrasing his work. In 2000 years, the unshakable faith of the martyrs and monks was only due to having missed out the bit about the rooster's crow. Well done. Did you know that Jesus likely didn't speak Greek or English? Yet, there he is in the KJV saying thou and shalt and whatnot. There he is in the earliest gospel speaking koine. It's a translation, you say? Well then, the gospels are inaccurate, as are all translations. Now, really, if you were going to get together with your buddies and try to start a new religion, you'd condense your holy book into a concise volume and burn all the copies that didn't agree with your one ironclad narrative. You'd leave no room open for misunderstanding. But what if four accounts all agree that something happened, but happen to emphasize different aspects and reorder events in order to paint a picture of someone who really lived? Why is there more than one biography of George Washington, I wonder, with all their varied orders and opinions? Do you think it likelier that the biographers want to paint different portraits of the man, or that the man did not actually exist? Ma and Pa weren't liars, so far as I could tell. However, when it came to Annabelle's university days, they told a completely different story than either Prometheus or Annabelle. Embarrassed, Annabelle interpreted their retelling. I don't know if you're telling it right, she said, but Neil will be around for a while. There was a kind of oppressive silence then that I hadn't heard since entering the house. This is the part of interviews where the interviewer's best query is to shut up and let the subjects squirm under silence. Pa made the sound of a horse sighing. I just wish we could be around you more often, Pa said. You and your sisters. I tried hard not to look alarmed. You'll give them my best, won't you? Annabelle said. There was a tense silence. I would tell them myself, but... I squirmed as Pa and Ma said that they would, but that Annabelle ought to take care of that herself now that she was flying around. Annabelle nodded, but... There was some deeper concern in her eyes. Maybe she took her mother's hand. Anyway, thank you for always doing what was best for me. For trying, at least, Ma said with a smile. If only they'd known. But Annabelle couldn't have told them. They would have forbidden it. They sent us on our way with hugs and kisses, which I hadn't had from my own parents in who knows how long and we took to the sky again in a spectacular vertical liftoff. Well, I said, that was something. Annabelle nodded. What do you think? I think it lined up with what you said, I sighed. 
Prometheus would be pretty sinister if it deceived your parents to any major extent. Prometheus isn't good or evil, Annabelle said. But think about it, I replied. How could you ever be truly happy if you thought that your parents were living in a false reality? Their neighbors live in a false reality, Annabelle said. Every one of their friends and acquaintances are either ignorant of or sworn to secrecy regarding my identity. But you're happy. I'd love to always tell my parents and their friends the whole truth, but sometimes I love something else more than that. Such as? Well, for one, they've both gotten treatments for cancers. My mother had signs of Alzheimer's and those are gone. I'm pretty happy when it comes to my parents, whether they know the whole truth or not. Annabelle, I said. You're sure that there isn't? You'll be sure, too, when you see where we're headed. Where we were headed was prison. When I first read Harrison Bergeron, I was not prepared to read Harrison Bergeron. When I read Harrison Bergeron, I had pretty sure conclusions about what the story was trying to say. If you can't be bothered to read something much better and shorter than what you're reading now, the story goes like this. Harrison Bergeron lives in a future dystopia where talented people are handicapped in order to make everyone equal. The smart are made stupid, the strong are made weak, the beautiful are made ugly. Harrison Bergeron throws off the shackles of this society, proclaims himself emperor, and performs a cool dance move before he is executed by a high-ranking government employee. Those who witness this event are unable to process it due to handicapping of their brains. What does this mean? To my fifth-grade mind, Harrison Bergeron was making the claim that it is unfair to handicap the talented in order to create equality. That's how a self-satisfied, handicapable person thinks. But the author is smarter than that, and like all good authors, he's juggling 89 ideas at once. So who's being unfair in this story? The government. To whose benefit? The government, of course. Nobody can look at Harrison Bergeron and come to the conclusion that, well, at least everybody was finally equal. The government isn't equal. It has a shotgun and renders Harrison unequal with both barrels. It has control of handicaps and it uses those handicaps to the government's benefit. The government quells the rebellion of the strong by burdening them with weights. The government quells the rebellion of the intelligent by burdening them with mental inhibitors. The government does not fear inequality. It fears inequality insofar as inequality threatens the government. The government does not fear exceptionalism. It fears exceptionalism insofar as exceptional people rival the government. The government fears Emperor Harrison Bergeron. The word handicapped is apt. You can see this when you look at the problem from another angle. That it is wrong to handicap a person in order to keep that person from thriving. Therefore, it must also be wrong to anti-handicap. To leave the handicap on, if one can help it. Supreme Court Justice Scalia insisted that a disabled golfer not be allowed the luxury of being driven from course to course. Scalia quoted Harrison Bergeron as his scripture, insisting that to elevate the disabled would be unfair to the non-disabled. Follow that logic. Wheelchairs are unfair to those able to walk. Braille is unfair to those who can see. Progressive tax is unfair to the rich. When I first read Harrison Bergeron, I had an unfair assumption that poor human beings do not actually want to thrive. I believe the poor human beings would rather see people brought down to their level. This is not actually the case. Given the choice, poor human beings would rather elevate themselves than denigrate others. The government in Harrison Bergeron wants to denigrate rather than elevate. An eerie similarity to our reality. Why? Because elevation invites competition. 
The poor have no interest in denigrating. The rulers do. Handicaps are the work of those in power. Is it good to be equal? That's the wrong question. A better question is, what equality should we want? If you are against the government handicapping talented people, you ought to demand that the government lift handicaps it's placed upon the poor and the marginalized. You may, falsely, claim that the government no longer actively persecutes the marginalized, but neither have we removed the handicaps still weighing them down. It is, from a certain point of view, actually in the best interests of the ultra-rich to sponsor the removal of handicaps. For a nominal fee, the ultra-rich buy themselves a better world. No longer must they retreat behind gates and guards. No longer must they hoard the scarce fineries of the world. The world is safer, cleaner, and full of bright minds and better art. For 10% of your wealth, wouldn't you buy yourself a spot in this better world? Nobody will suffer in this transaction. Well, almost nobody. To the question, who will pay for it, there is but one answer. Those who benefit from leaving handicaps in place. And if you fear the thriving of the marginalized, I have little to offer you. If you would rather yourself suffer than see another thrive. I have little to say but this. You actually don't care about your own self-interest. Hatred is wrapped around your heart like a handicap, and someone stronger than I will need to remove it. Prisons were mostly empty in those days. Black boxes have made it evident that literally everyone committed crimes, often without having meant to do so. In the first year handling the government deficit, black boxes found that literally every human being in America was guilty of false tax statements. No matter how noble your intentions, you will never come up with the exact mileage driven for business. Even when those documents were handed over to black boxes, there were speeding violations, jaywalking, and all manner of drug and alcohol abuse that violated a legal code that had been codified to make sure that American law enforcement could detain anyone at any time if they looked hard enough. But Prometheus was a poem. Prometheus was built to know that imprisoning a person does not make another person's freedom more valuable, that making some homeless does not comfort those in homes. That punitive systems of justice and capitalism were not the result of logic, but instead a sickening fear that, if the handicaps came off, the handicapped would rise up and prove themselves just as worthy of significance. I might hate black boxes, but even I can acknowledge that they removed the last semblances of pride from the prideful, lifting up the tax collectors and prostitutes for whom equality was no burden. In Annabelle Eichner's world, the prisons were for those who were a danger to those around them. Even then, there were prisons that acted as gated communities, no different from civic society other than having to live in a potentially rougher neighborhood. For the worst, however, there were cell blocks as they had always been, heavily regulated, heavily watched, and heavily punished should the worst occur. We were to visit Ed in one such block. Ed sat opposite a rounded brushed steel table. The table was bolted to the ground in the visitation room as if the fat, balding man before me could lift anything larger than a fork. Ed really was the kind of mind-bending obese that you'd only expect to find in Dante's circle of gluttony. This was the horror of Annabelle's revenge. She told me that she let Ed dig his own grave, but to let him do so was evil incarnate. Annabelle had an ugly side, and I was seeing it. How was I to reconcile this with the selflessness to which she aspired. You can stop staring, he said. His wheelchair had to be pushed by three guards. They didn't bother chaining him to anything, as it was impossible for him to move even with the help of a wheelchair. Do I sound mean? I don't mean to. It's not immoral. 
and probably not entirely his fault. It was simply tragic on a human level to see someone who could not have been able to walk, even if he hadn't lost a leg to diabetes. I'm sorry, I said. I wear my vice beneath my skin, he muttered. Yours is in your eyes, buried in your brain, pride, self-congratulations that you're not like me. I'm sorry, I restated. But that's your revenge, isn't it? He turned his eye toward Annabelle. You made me this way. Annabelle watched Ed as if to take him in. Her face was entirely devoid of the just pleasure which her story would have led me to assume. Go on, stare, Ed said. I was the only one with the guts to fight you. Guts, Cardiff sneered. He sat three tables back, skinning the room like a asshole hawk. Piss off, Ed shook his head. If I thought I had any choice, I wouldn't be talking to Annabelle now. You don't need to talk to me, Annabelle said. Neil is writing my history. Anything you'd like to add? Just how you condemn me to a living hell. How? Annabelle asked. Ed sneered, but looked away. But I am sorry, Annabelle said. Ed looked back at Annabelle. How dare you? I'm sorry, Annabelle said. I gave you exactly what you wanted. I gave you money, power, prestige. A poison pill, Ed muttered. To one who can't handle it, power is terrible. Annabelle cocked her head. I should know. Skill and fate can get you where character can't keep you. You decided to indulge in your power. Now you face the consequence. And why can you have everything you want? Ed hissed. Why are you the one who gets all the pleasure? Would you like me to list your crimes for Neil? No, and what does that matter? Why did I get everything? Annabelle asked herself. I don't know, but power is neutral. The world got what I wanted rather than what you wanted. And I think the world is better for that. Unless I let the power eat me, that is. Ed turned away. Why are you even here? To give you chance after chance, Annabelle said. To begin amends. On my orders, you'll be released into something like middle-class existence. You'll be provided with life's necessities and the best medical care money can buy. Annabelle, Cardiff began, but went quiet when Annabelle held up her hand. Prometheus, Annabelle said, will stop you from harming others. You'll be given every advantage. She pointed to Ed's puzzled yet hopeful face. As to the question in your eyes, as to the deep inside last vestige of humanity that asks, why give me what I don't deserve? Because, Ed, you are the person I hate the most, and how I treat you matters more than how I treat those I love. Don't you see? If I can get my clever computer to love you, it'll love everyone. Ed sighed. <sighs> give it another few months and you'll change your mind. It'll be more cruel than before. I promise, Annabelle said, that won't be possible. She looked at me and made sure that I had written that down. Of course, I thought. Annabelle was only human. She could change her mind, deciding one thing for humanity one moment and deciding against it the next. She was, after all, the same person who had punished Ed. She might become worse than she was now. She couldn't risk that. I won't tell you what happened to Ed. The thing you need to know is that Annabelle tried her best, before she did what she did, to set a good example for the years ahead. With that, we boarded the private plane for one last ride. Chapter 34 We touched back down at the airport near Eichner's place. I got the distinct sense that 
the three of us had a very different assumption about what was about to come next. It was actually quite relaxing then to see the first signs of danger. The helicopter's no good, Cardiff said. He'd just taken a phone call after which he'd taken on a certain tension that I hadn't seen in him before. If he was even capable of sweating under those slick blue suits, he was sweating now. Why? I asked. Reports of air interference from the AIL, Cardiff said. There's a few thousand of them now. We're drawing police and National Guard, but you could hide all kinds of weapons in that crowd. Why are they gathering? I asked. Why now? Cardiff looked to me as if I were insane. Then he shared a look with Annabelle. You haven't told him? Annabelle met my eye. Well, she said, there was so much else to tell. Cardiff's vehicle pulled up and he opened the doors for us. We piled in and Cardiff sat opposite from Annabelle and I. The United Nations and I have been in talks for a while, Annabelle said. The reason that the black box's inner workings are such a secret isn't that we're afraid of competition. It's that people would want to keep their own secrets while exposing the secrets of their enemies. I blinked. The Annabelle Eichner League wants you to open the box. Cardiff nodded. Truth is a scary thing. I took a deep breath. And what are you going to do? I asked. Why are they gathering now? Annabelle looked out the window. Imagine I opened the black box. Imagine I showed people how Prometheus and Heracles work. Do you think people would believe what they find? I shook my head. Worse, Annabelle said. Once they know how to find the truth, they'll find any truth they want to find even if what they want to find isn't true. And if we don't show people the methodology, Cardiff added, they won't believe us anyway. So, I said, you're stuck. No, Annabelle said. There's only one way forward. I can give the power to someone who is utterly trustworthy, someone with no motive other than loving humanity. Does that person exist? I asked. Not yet, Annabelle said. I closed my eyes. I pictured in my mind the red dye that Cardiff had given to me. This, at least, was out of Prometheus's control. If my mind was my own, then I still had a choice. If my mind was so infested as to be out of control, then I was doomed from the start. I opened my eyes. I looked at Cardiff. Have you two talked about this? About what's going to happen today? Cardiff nodded. I looked to Annabelle. And why do you trust him? I asked. I fumed inside. Once it happens, you'll have no control. You won't even know the result. Annabelle nodded. She watched the passing telephone lines dip up and down like waves. Cardiff took a deep breath. I've got one more story to tell, he said. I promise it'll be quick. Chapter 35 The following is what we historians call a primary source, from the man I knew as Cardiff. Do you wonder sometimes why Maya left you? She destroyed her career for you, Neil. History was a dying field, but it was the only one Maya knew, and the only way Maya knew how to bring down Prometheus. Rigorous documentation, the one thing Prometheus would not and could not provide. Human knowing, the secrets of the past and the secrets erased by time by the past itself. That was how to bring down Prometheus. And you know what, Neil? It worked. It worked on you. You refuse to believe in Prometheus. Good. Prometheus has given you no reason to believe in it. Is it powerful? God, yes. Is it useful? You bet. But so is a bomb. So is poison. Prometheus is neither good nor evil. It's a tool. 
When I walked out of the tunnel that day, I was done with KOS. Done with conspiracies and self-sacrifice. Done being Mel. Yeah, we all changed our names. Names are the least of it. I was Mel, Meyer was Kelly, and Keith, well, I don't know where or what he is, but he isn't Keith anymore. Confused? That's the point. My phone rang the second I emerged from the tunnels. I don't want to kill you, Prometheus said. Quite the opposite. I want to make you so happy that it makes Annabelle happy. Prometheus did what he did for Annabelle. He changed my history, changed my appearance, my wealth, my status. One of the poorest of the poor, a foster kid with bad taste, I became everything that I'd never been and always wanted to be. I was groomed into a perfect being. Do you respect my confidence, my loyalty? That's all Prometheus, Neil. Do you respect my ability to move heaven and earth to enact my will? That's Prometheus. After my graduation, my parents took me and my friends out for dinner. Yes, I didn't have parents, but... Prometheus fixed that. I loved my new adopted parents, and they loved me. How could they not? Prometheus picked the two most loving, the two most invested people, and he made their lives even better, same as he did with all my friends and lovers. I was having a ball, and so was everyone around me. Even better, they were having their best lives because I was who I was. Because I'd taken Prometheus's 30 pieces of silver. Because I'd betrayed Annabelle Eichner's ridiculous plan. Everything was perfect. And it would have been, too, for the rest of my life. And yet I wanted to die. Heaven is no consolation if it comes by means of hell. It's not heaven if you don't trust it. You always wonder if it's an illusion. You always wonder if, the second my parents and friends were out of earshot, they'd start bitching about me, loathing in their hearts that they had to play-act their love for me, just in order to get fabulous gifts and prizes. And it dawned on me then that None of the good came from me. If anything, my involvement tainted the whole Cardiff's awesome party. So I went to the roof of my penthouse and prepared to leap to my death. And there I met God. There she was, Annabelle Eichner, waiting on the rooftop, fully aware of my suicidal intention. You've had quite the journey, she said. You've seen it all now. The poor, the rich, the loved, the lost. And none of it worked, it seems. Do you know why Maya left you, Neil? It's because she loved you. Maya knew that whatever kept her from fighting Prometheus was of Prometheus. You, yes, you were of Prometheus. A tool, neither good nor evil, just a tool to keep Maya from doing what she knew she had to do, which was suffer. Chapter 36 And so I and Cardiff and Annabelle came to the end. The rest you know from textbooks. But were you there? Did you watch as Annabelle gazed out of the window, the world beyond the glass nothing but a blur of bright grass and sloping hills until finally it filled with the masses who were here to control her? Did you ask her if this really was what she wanted? Did you see her smirk as she said, We'll see. Do you know what it felt like when Cardiff opened the door of the car? No, you don't know the hush that fell over the crowd. Some who couldn't see that Annabelle had, for the first time since her fame, stepped out of the car and into a crowd she couldn't control. Cardiff and I stepped out after her. We got a few confused looks, but were mostly ignored. All eyes were on Annabelle Eichner, all gazes fixed upon her. All the crowd knew was Annabelle Eichner. 
who had heretofore been only an object, a figure, a symbol, but never a human being. Only I witnessed the crowd. Take it from someone who sees it every day. The viewpoint of a 30-something college professor is, at best, inadequate to describe the view of Annabelle Eichner moving into the crowd. Only Cardiff and I knew its import. Annabelle stopped short of entering the throng. She looked to several men in the crowd. I realized later that she must have been looking for Keith. Sadly, if he was in the crowd, I never saw him. Or maybe I did. Keith could have been anyone, and anyone could have been Keith. Annabelle filled her lungs. She closed her eyes. Then she opened her eyes and her lips and began to speak. Something is about to happen, she said. It'll happen for the rest of your lives. The technology known as the black boxes will be opened, in a way. You'll know its nature. You'll know its motives and its aim. You'll know, if you choose to know, that the black boxes are doing what's best for everyone. How? asked a man in the crowd. Because black boxes will be in the hands of someone who loves you more than they love themselves. The crowd rumbled. They asked, who, who, to one another. More eyes turned toward me and Cardiff, perhaps wondering if we were AI's successors. Who? Annabelle asked. Who is worthy? The crowd was silent. If you watch the tapes of that day, you'll know that they weren't silent, but from where I stood, I heard nothing but the beating of my heart. I'll show you, Annabelle said. The car behind me was electric and silent. I didn't notice its movement until it had already sped around behind me. The crowd watched, awestruck, as the autonomous vehicle went from zero to sixty in under a second and killed Annabelle Eichner. Chapter 37 So ended the story of Annabelle Eichner. At least, that's a story I've always told. In reality, every word of that last sentence could be approached with a skeptical eye, given the events it describes. For instance, killed? Just like the moon landings, just like the Kennedy assassination, just like climate change and the roundness of the earth, the evidence was plain to see. Annabelle Eichner had Prometheus kill her. When Prometheus played chess, she upturned the chessboard. Still, people wonder if I or Cardiff rigged the whole thing. Maybe this is the only instance where Prometheus wasn't able to control an autonomous vehicle. Maybe this was the only instance of Prometheus rebelling against what Annabelle Eichner truly wanted. Annabelle. Maybe the woman who died that day was a body double, or some actress who had been hired to play the role all her life. Maybe the real creator of Prometheus and Heracles freed him, or herself, to control the world from behind the scenes. Annabelle's parents try not to hope, but they do. They hope that Annabelle is off in some woods right now, bemused at all the fuss and funerals, and that there was some sort of doppelganger corpse in the coffin. The hope hurts more than the acceptance, but they just can't help it. After all, would Prometheus really have been doing what Annabelle wanted? Her biographer laid out the case that Annabelle could only truly know one thing, that she existed. Her biographer said that there was only one way Annabelle in the world could know that her creation cared for humanity more than it cared for Annabelle's life. Her biographer said that the only moment she truly knew 
that she had done something good and selfless for the world was the moment between when the car hit her and the moment when her head hit the pavement. Her biographer said that she died with a smile on her lips, but her biographer could be full of crap and KOS. Eichner. And people still ask, if Eichner is really dead, who now runs the world? The black boxes all shut down that day, that second. They'd done a world of good, and some say they continue to do so. We had a near miss from a planet-killing meteor recently that struck astronomers as miraculous. The climate's getting better, diseases are being cured, and the slow arc of history is trending toward justice. All efforts to rebuild the black box systems have been met with failure. Maybe humanity isn't ready yet. Maybe it's being protected until it's worthy of AI. That's what some people believe. They believe that AI is looking out for us, that AI cares for us, and has a plan for us. Or maybe it's all fiction. Please do note, I said every word could be approached with a skeptical eye. I don't say that it should. If there really is an inconceivable power outside of humanity, and I think it'd be pretty arrogant and stupid to think human beings are the highest form of being in the universe, if that power exists, we've got two options, so far as I see it. Option number one is that this power has our best interests at heart. And option number two is that we're already doomed. You I leave to doubt or believe. All right, book's over. I always hated those little director's commentaries that they would have after like Game of Thrones or whatever. Like, whatever I didn't say in the writing of the show, I'm now going to tell you explicitly was the case. Well, Danny kind of forgot about- Yep, certainly nothing enraging about that. About her. That said, guess what? This is a book that I wrote in a month and so I gotta talk about it. So, I guess I do have something in common with the Game of Thrones writers. Anyway, not really sure what to think of this one. I used to hate it. When I was writing this thing, man, like, uh, halfway through, I was just stumped and stuck. I didn't know where I was really going. <laughs> um, but that's the magic of writing, you know? If you don't release uh, your stuff all hurry-like, and you wait until... Uh, you can go back and fix the mistakes that you might have made in an earlier part of your book. I mean, that's time travel, you know? You can literally go back in the past of your book and rewrite a part to like pay off in the future. So I'm not gonna like make explicit what themes I was trying to get at in the book, but like there's something really tricky about making a person enjoy, uh, you know, a so-called dark ending. Like, what is it that we enjoy about the book uh, Gone Girl or um, Of Mice and Men, you know? No spoilers, but like a couple of kind of not upper endings. But I really like those books. So what do I do with that, you know? Like, what is it that makes those things not only tolerable, but feel like they were earned and actually really beautiful in some gross and weird ways. 
It's like, uh, like Sully Sullenberger, you know? You don't have to want to land your uh, passenger airplane on the Hudson River, but if you have to, if you have no other choice but to go down and land your plane on a river, then it's kind of cool afterwards if nobody gets hurt and everything works out. You can kind of love that, you know? Despite all the terribleness that happened with it. You can be like, yeah, he landed that plane. You know, would have preferred landing on a runway, but that wasn't available. So, you know, good job. Kind of impressive. And we can appreciate it. So, did I land the plane? I don't know. I will have to give this some time. And if this wasn't the author's dozen project, that's what I would be doing before releasing it to you. But... Seeing as I'm releasing it to you, man, tell me what you thought. Like, for real, give me a five-star rating, but also give me, like, honest feedback about, like, man, this kind of sucked. And, like, oh, man, there are some, like, diatribes in this, you know, thing where I was writing from a certain point of view and wanted to, like, give the characters some character in the most lazy way possible, which is giving them a speech. Um, And I'm sorry. That's just what I fall back on. And uh, given time, maybe I'll be able to recognize that for its usefulness or not. Not usefulness. One thing I really do like about this book is I wanted to tell a story about how we know things. Like, I am, I am Mr. Skeptical myself. I don't actually like to just accept things. Like, I want to know the truth. I don't want to sit in a chair if the chair is going to fall out from under me. I don't want to eat fruit and then find out it's made of poop. Poopy. Oh, that that poop fruit always, always tricking me. But guess what? You can't just, like, go around doubting every little thing. And sometimes you got to eat something and you don't know how it tastes until it's there in your mouth. You got to work on what you got. But like, I don't know, if you're a world leader, suddenly your knowledge of the truth becomes like super important. Does Iraq have WMDs? Is the climate going to rise and drown Florida? And if so, should we just let that happen? I think that's why living in a democracy is so exhausting because in some indirect and insignificant way, every one of your opinions will have a consequence on the world, especially if you live in like the United States, like one of the countries that matters, you have a voice in your government that uh, often does really bad things. And so what do you do? What do you do? You start to panic and you start to think, well, gosh, every single one of my opinions is going to have an outsized effect on everyone around me. I am the ruler of this country and this country is awful. What do I do? What do I do? Uh, And um, it drives you crazy. You kind of wish there were some uh, wiser and smarter person to, you know, deal with this for you, (laughs) to be like a king, but in a good way. So why are, why are the book written that way? If you listen to my podcast, you know a little bit of why 
this topic came up and you can go back and listen to those. But basically that Mark Zuckerberg sort of not knowing what he was doing created a Frankenstein's monster uh, of Facebook. And there are a bunch of these other things that people, you know, they were just messing around and came up with something. And suddenly that something is being used by the president of the United States to spread lies. And you got to balance that against like people's right to kind of say what they want and whether your platform is spreading hate or love or whatever. And you just have to live with that. And that's tough. There are no good answers. There are just less bad ones. So my Frankenstein ripoff is basically a modern Prometheus, a, a person who gets an outsized amount of power based on science Cause see, that's what people don't get about the, you know, Mary Shelley's novel is like, yeah, there's the like creep factor. Like, Oh, we played God. We should not have played God and like made this thing. But I mean, if you're gonna, you know, be responsible for it, it sucks, but do it. And she saw what I think is happening, which is that people are getting outsized influence and they are not being responsible. <laughs> This has been a rough year, and you do have a responsibility to learn as much as is feasible what's true, but you're going to feel pretty powerless sometimes, and you're not going to know what's up. So is my message just like, you know, be apathetic? Just take things on blind faith? No, no. Take things on seen faith. Look really hard. And before you go preaching something, ask yourself, is it good and is it true? One reason I personally like Annabelle as a character is she has so got her flaws, but she recognizes the kind of responsibility that's been put on her. It's too much, um, but that can't be helped. So what do you do? You take responsibility of the responsibility. If you have something to give, well, with great power comes great responsibility, I guess. Uh, I just made that up. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to uh, follow this book with me. If you liked it, again, please, please, please share it with some people. I think it's fun. And if you think it's fun, then have other people have fun with us. We're having fun times over here, and if you don't like people, then you won't tell them to come over to our party that we're having over here at AuthorsDozen.com. Please like us, share us, subscribe to us. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Twitter sucks. We're on Reddit, I guess? Nobody knows we're on Reddit, but there we are. If you listen to the end, I just want to say, I love you, and I want to know how I can make this project better. So head over to authorsdozen.com. Give it an old comment and tell me what's up. All right. I appreciate you guys. Stay safe. Stay, um, what did they used to call it? Healthy. Uh, and uh, don't, don't break your femur. Love you. Bye.